Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 13. A little idea of my own. Our next destination, Butte, Montana, was like nowhere we'd been so far. We'd sampled America's cities with their tall buildings, their mighty bridges and their elevated railways, and enjoyed the hustle and bustle and energy of those places. We had visited smaller towns, slower paced, more genteel, and we'd nipped across into Canada, where our audience had seemed so predominantly English that it had been much like playing Nottingham, say, or Bristol. Butte was the largest city for a hundred miles in any direction, one of the largest cities west of the Mississippi, and it had a reputation as a place where anything goes. It nestled in a natural bowl high up in the Rockies, on what the locals styled the richest hill on earth. Originally, it had been a prospector's camp, for miners trying to winkle silver and gold from the hard rock, but then Mr Edison had jump-started the age of electricity, and suddenly what the world needed more than anything else was copper for making wire, and there was copper in Namnair Hills. And if it was boom time for copper, and boom time for Butte, then it sure as hellfire was boom time for Vaudeville. There was the Majestic, where we were to spend the week, then there was the Orpheum, the Lyric, the Princess, and the Empire, not to mention the Broadway, the largest auditorium between St Paul and Spokane, which prided itself on bringing attractions from New York all the way to the Rocky Mountains. Each of the different nationalities of miners that had pitched up there from all corners of the globe was catered for by its own brewery, making beer the particular way its drinkers liked it, and just about the only respite from the choking smoke constantly spewing from the smelting works chimney stacks was wandering into the cloying, yeasty orbit of a mashed tun. Nonetheless, everyone was so determinedly having a rambunctious good time all the time, hard rock miners from around the world living hard, playing hard, that it was an exhilarating place to be. We would walk along the main strip late at night, past the end of Venus Alley, the red light district, where hundreds of girls were waiting in their cribs to relieve cowboys and miners alike of their spare dollars, and every saloon would have light and noise spilling out onto the street, an Irish fiddle playing on one side, a concertina or even a balalaika on the other, and the signs reading, Please spit into the spittoons provided, were in sixteen different languages. Walk along that same strip at lunchtime, however, and it was like a ghost town. Half the population was sleeping off the night before, the other half were underground, earning the money to pay for it. The saloons were open, though, and would offer a free lunch counter to tempt in what passing trade there was at that time of day. This was mostly, in truth, the artistes from the many shows. We took to spending the time before our three-a-day at Mac and Carey's Orpheum Bar, where for a nickel you could get a glass of beer and your pick of a delicatessen counter. There we'd find pig's knuckles, sliced ham, potato salad, sardines, macaroni cheese, all kinds of sliced sausages, liverwurst, salami and hot dogs. On our wages, the place was a godsend. One lunchtime that week, I barrelled in there with Freddy, Mike and Stan, eager to fuel up for the day, and saw that Charlie was in there on his own, sitting in a corner. Tilly and the girls were nowhere to be seen, and I spied my chance. So, once I'd piled my plate up high with goodies, I headed over to join him. 
As I crossed the floor, the barman sang out, "'Hey, where the hell are you going with that load? The Klondike!' I paused guiltily mid-step, my food mountain teetering in my hands, but he waved me on. Michael O'Neill, his name was, and he'd come over from County Clare with more than enough funny stories to take to the boards if he'd a mind to do it. Anyway, I sat myself down opposite Charlie and began to chomp on a Cornish pasty. He looked up from his book for a moment, then down again. After a mouthful or two, I began. Charlie, I said, he looked up again, I wanted to ask you for a favour. A favour? Yes, in return for the considerable favour that I did you, you'll remember, when I permitted you to continue your career and come along on this trip. Charlie slowly turned down the corner of the page he was reading, closed the book, and placed it on the table in front of him. When you permitted that, he said, savouring the word. That's right. I could have gone to Carno, you know, and told him what you and Sid got up to, around the time of that contest we had over the football match. You could have, he acknowledged. He was not at all flustered by this conversation. In fact, if anything, he was irritatingly serene, as if he'd expected this to happen sooner or later. I, on the other hand, was getting more and more wound up. But I didn't do that, did I? And so, why didn't you? Why didn't I? Why didn't you go to Carno? I would have. That doesn't matter. Then you might have been the number one instead of me. I would have. I should have. Carno would have chosen me, if it hadn't been for the fact that you paid a footballer to break my damned leg. Well... I suppose we'll never know that, will we? Oh, I know it. Charlie sat back in his chair and regarded me curiously. What is this favour to which you believe you are entitled? I want you to stop monopolising Tilly, that's what I want. Monopolising, he smirked. Yes, monopolising her. Do we know what the young lady in question has to say on the matter? Leave her out of this. He laughed, and even I realised it was a ridiculous thing to say, but I was steaming. Well, it occurs to me that she might have her own thoughts, regardless of anything we might agree on between ourselves. She's a bright girl, and very talented. Perhaps she would like to see that talent expressed, developed, enjoyed. Perhaps she sees that the best way to achieve this is to consort, for want of a better word, with the number one of a company, rather than a mere supporting artiste such as yourself. All it takes is one wire to the governor, I snarled, pointing a finger in his face. Oh, do you know what? I think that ship has sailed, my friend, Charlie smiled. That's what you think, is it? Yes, it is. I'm sorry. I can't imagine Carno bothering himself with a parochial little matter such as that, so far away and so unimportant. Perhaps when we were right on his doorstep, and it wasn't something that happened well over a year ago, he might have felt strongly enough to intervene, but now I'm not too concerned. So wire away if you feel you must. Remember what happened last time you stepped on my toes, I said, menacing, leaning closer across the table. Charlie smiled again, but I saw in his eyes that he did remember. We'd been in Paris, playing the Folie Bergère. He had found Tilly when I'd been looking for her for a year or more, but he hadn't said anything to me and had begun courting her behind my back. I'd confronted him in a crowded restaurant and swung a furious haymaker at his head. He dropped to all fours and scuttled between my legs, popping up behind me. I swung again and he did the same dodge, this time kicking me unceremoniously up the backside. Enraged by the hoots of laughter from the other patrons, I tried to grab him in a bear hug, pinning him from behind. He ran up the white shirt front of a fat gentleman with a walrus moustache, yes, ran up him, and twisted out of my grasp. Then he planted a kiss on the end of my nose and sprang to freedom. 
We'd both been tipped out onto the street then by burly waiters and had continued our dispute back at our lodgings where our fight had been refereed by our Carnot colleague Ernie Stone, an ex-professional pugilist, and Maurice Chevalier, and we'd gone hard at one another. By the time they'd called enough, there was blood on the walls, blood on the ceiling, Chaplin's eyes were swollen shut, and his perfect white teeth were rattling loose in his jaw. I'd been awoken the next morning by the screaming from a premier danseuse at the folly who thought that Charlie was dead. Abruptly our conversation was over, because Tilly herself came in, followed by the panting Frank Melroyd. "'Hello, you boys,' she said. "'We've just been sightseeing, working up a bit of an appetite for our lunch. "'We've seen the head frame of a copper mine called the Never Sweat, and the chimneys of the smelting works. "'It's been terribly romantic.' Frank laughed dutifully, and the pair of them went to inspect the nickel buffet. I stood up and glared back at Charlie, as if to say, "'Remember what I said.' even though the discussion hadn't been a tremendous success. He didn't seem chastened at all. He just looked smug. I brooded on the misfire of my attempt to keep him in line for the next couple of days. It was eating away at me that he was still persisting in making a play for Tilly, and if our rivalry had been put to one side for a time, it was now very much back centre stage. I found myself determined to try and get back at him, take him down a peg. Or even two pegs. Two pegs would be good. I knew, of course, that the best way to really get under his skin was to outshine him, steal his limelight. But how was this to be achieved? A solution presented itself quite out of the blue towards the end of that week. I was in Mac and Carey's bar after the evening shows, a much busier place than at lunchtime, with a line of miners at the bar taking it in turns to hawk black phlegm into the silver spittoons, and a stocky, muscle-bound fellow with curly hair approached me. "'Excuse me.' the man said, with a familiar hint of an Eastern European accent. "'But you are the English magician, though, the prestidigitateur?' "'That's right,' I said. "'Did you enjoy the show, Mr. Houdini?' "'Ah, so,' the great man nodded. "'I was not sure you would remember our brief conversation in New York.' "'Indeed,' I said, pumping his hand enthusiastically. "'It is a great pleasure to meet you again, sir. My name is Dando, Arthur Dando.' "'Pleasure is mine,' Houdini said. "'I feel I must own up to something. You see... I came to your theatre this evening after my own performance was completed. That's right, I said. You're at the Broadway, are you not? The large theatre at the far end of the strip? Houdini nodded in acknowledgement of this, and continued. I came principally because I heard that your turn featured a performance by a magician. Oh, I'm, I'm really just an actor pretending to be a magician, I said. All magicians are just actors pretending to be magicians, Houdini replied. Or do you believe that magic is real? Um... There are many so-called magicians on the circuits, and I make it my business to see as many as I can, and if possible to deter the unworthy from queering the pitch for the rest of us. There is a society now, based in New York, and we wish to make it impossible for a magician to perform unless he is a member. In this way, we hope to maintain quality and standards. We? I asked. The brethren. The brotherhood of, if you like, prestidigitateurs. Here he gave a little nod, acknowledging the title my character insisted upon in the act. "'I see,' I said, wondering where this was leading. "'Naturally I realised early on that you were not a true magician, but merely a comical stooge.' "'Well, I'm a little bit more than that,' I started, but he waved my objection away. "'Nonetheless, it sticks in my throat to see a brother conjurer, even a fake one, fall foul of a drunken imbecile such as the tumbling dolt in your show. "'That's Charlie Chaplin, of course, you remember him.' Houdini grimaced, and I could see that you remembered our number one very well.' Suddenly I recalled something I'd read not long before, and I asked, "'Hey, how the hell did you escape from the belly of a beached whale, for God's sake?' Houdini tapped the side of his nose. 
It's all about preparation, my friend. Really? Oh, yes. Where do you think the suggestion really came from, eh? Houdini had claimed he could escape from any location suggested by a member of the public, but I saw what he was getting at. You? He shrugged. Who do you think beached the veil in the first place? I looked at him. Surely that was a joke, wasn't it? But he was giving nothing away. Anyway, he went on, as I was saying, perhaps I have an uncommon perspective, but I did not like to see the drunken spectator get the better of the magician. I did not like that at all. And I wondered if something could perhaps be done. Within the act, I mean. And for the sake of the act. A twist no humorist of your standing could resist. A twist? Well, your tricks are all, of course, intended to go disastrously wrong. But what if one, just one of them, were to suddenly astound? Wouldn't that create a moment? Wouldn't that get people talking? Would that not be magic? I guess it would at that. And would it not also confound that wretched persecutor of yours? I kept a straight face, but I was grinning inside. Did you not find Chaplin funny, Mr. Houdini? Funny? Bah! I wanted to climb up onto the stage and shove him back into his box with my bare hands! To my great amusement, Houdini seemed to have developed quite a grudge against Charlie, and did not, apparently, believe the little man was a genius. As you can imagine, we hit it off handsomely. Within a short while, he was proposing effects, tricks, things he could teach me, things that it would take time and dedication to perfect, of course, but things that would most definitely upstage our number one comic, and no mistake. In the end, you know, if you think you could pull it off, the best thing would be to work on the Duff Pan segment. Do you agree? The prestidigitateur would proudly claim that he could produce a dove from thin air. With great pomp and moment, he would produce a silver platter with a matching lid, which he would dramatically whisk away to reveal a small cloud of white feathers and no bird. He would then rampage around, searching for the escaped creature, while the swell, Charlie, pelted him with fruit and other detritus. It was very much the climax of the magician's humiliation, and his lovely assistant, Tilly, of course, would then usher him into the wings. "'What if?' Houdini began, and as he explained what he had in mind, I felt a huge smile cracking my drunken chops. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Chapter 14. Hog Wild. 
After Butte, we hopped around the northwest corner of the United States. Mercifully, the boxcar journeys there were shorter and not so gruelling. Spokane we visited next, then Seattle, Mr. Considine's hometown, with Vancouver, Tacoma and Portland to come, before heading down south towards California. While we were in Seattle, my friend Mr. Jobson, Considine's butler, presented himself backstage at the Majestic. His boss had expressed a desire for a chat with some of our company, and would I like to visit him for a morning coffee the very next day. Alf Reeves was particularly keen that I should oblige, as he was busily angling for further Sullivan and Considine dates once this tour was finished. So I talked Stan into coming along, and the two of us strolled up a luxurious curbing driveway towards a pretty fancy-looking double-fronted mansion the following morning. Jobson relieved us of our coats and hats, and showed us into a library, where John W. Considine, theatrical entrepreneur, was sitting by a fireplace chomping a cigar and reading a hefty-looking leather-bound tome. Actually, I wasn't sure that he was reading it, because as he put it down onto a side table, it looked like it was upside down. But anyway, "'Hey, fellas, great to see you,' Considine said, standing and shaking us warmly by the hand. "'Tell me, how are you enjoying your first tour of the Sullivan and Considine circuit?' "'Very much, Mr. Considine,' I said. "'Grand. That's grand. It's going to be the first entirely transcontinental vaudeville circuit, you know, west coast to east coast, once Sullivan lines us up some theatres in New York, which he assures me he will most certainly do. The railroad is a marvellous thing, a marvellous thing,' Considine barrelled on. "'Why, Mr. Sullivan himself was able to visit me just this last week.' "'Really?' I said. "'Yes, and he told me the darndest thing.' I asked him about your show, see, and, and how did he like it, and he said there was a white sheet hanging in front of the whole thing. Ah, yes, Stan said, he saw our shadow play. But I was under the impression that I had booked the world-famous Mummingbirds, Considine said, and there was an angry edge to his voice all of a sudden. Well, ah, uh, yes, said Stan, a little flustered. Clearly he had picked up on the tone, too. The thing is, you see, our box car, with all our set and costumes in it, went missing from Winnipeg. "'and so we were obliged to improvise something quickly, do you see, to fill in. "'Your boxcar went missing.' "'Not missing, exactly. It, it just was not uncoupled at Winnipeg. So, "'And who was responsible for that?' Considine growled. "'I'm sure it was just a mistake at the switching yard, sir,' I said. "'Mistake my corn-fed backside!' Considine raged. "'You know who's behind this, don't you?' "'I'd been wondering whether Charlie might have been behind it, actually, "'so as to have an excuse to put on his shadow effort, "'but Mr. Jobson, returning with a coffee-pot and cups, "'was already nodding in a long-suffering fashion. "'It's that King Greek!' Considine exploded. "'I beg your pardon,' I said. "'Winnipeg! It's his hometown! "'He's always hated that I have a theatre there, too. "'He'll stop at nothing to close me down, "'sabotaging my headline act! "'The nerve of the man!' "'I'm sorry,' I said, but what man? "'Who are you talking about?' "'Why, Pantages, of course! Pantages! Tell them!' He pulled out a handkerchief and waved it at his butler, who took up the explanation. Uh, "'Mr. Alexander Pantages is a rival of Mr. Considine's. He, too, has a circuit of vaudeville theatres, in many cases in the same towns, even the same main streets. "'King Greek, he calls himself! King Greek! Fancies he's going to run me out of business with his low-down tricks!' Well, he doesn't want to go up against me, let me tell you. A fella came for me once with a gun, wearing a bulletproof vest he'd made himself by sewing silver dollars all over it. Know what happened to that crazy bastard? Stan and I gulped and shook our heads. I took his gun and shot him in the neck, that's what happened, he shouted, mopping at his forehead with his handkerchief. Jobson eased between us. Uh, gentlemen, Mr. Considine is becoming a little overwrought. Perhaps another time. Stan and I nodded gratefully and got the hell out of there pronto. 
On the way back to the Majestic, we talked about how affable and friendly the man seemed at first, but how tightly wound he became when we were discussing his rivalry with Pantages. Funny. It reminded me of something. In the green room, we found Charlie deep in conversation with one of the other artistes. Ralph Lose was one of a gymnastic double act, Lose and Sterling, which had joined the bill in Spokane and now seemed likely to be travelling with us for the foreseeable. They were billed as European gymnasts, even though both of them were blonde and well-built Texan farm boys. Charlie and Lose had become friendly, and I noticed that both seemed to be recovering from recent exertions. They were flushed, their hair was damp, and they had towels casually slung around their shoulders. "'What ho?' I said. "'What have you two lads been up to, eh?' "'Sparring,' Lose said genially. "'Really?' I said. It was a strange mental picture, as Lose must have stood almost half as tall again as Charlie. Charlie wanted to learn, and I used to box when I was a boy. Great way to keep limber, eh, Charlie? Lose gave Chaplin a cheerful clap on the shoulder, which almost knocked him over. Did he stand on a chair? Stan said, deadpan, and I saw Mike Asher trying not to laugh. Ha ha ha! Lose laughed. He got some good shots away, actually. I'll make a fighter of him yet. The big Texan left in search of some running water to wash himself down. I turned to Charlie and saw that he was looking at me with a challenging half-smirk on his chops. Very well, I thought. You have your plan, and I have mine. In the mornings, I had been pursuing my project, which was to locate a pet shop with a decent stock of white doves. This was not as easy as it sounds, as there were a number of other, I say other, I mean actual, magicians plying their trade in the city, and several times I got into rather heated arguments right there on the sidewalk, with curly mustachioed fellows demanding to see some credentials, perhaps even a membership card for Houdini's special society. Nonetheless, I was able to secure a basket with half a dozen specimens cooing away merrily inside, and I managed to sneak them up to the roof of the hotel. There I made my first stumbling attempt to perfect the illusion that Harry Houdini had suggested would steal the show from under the over-rouged nose of the celebrated drunken swell. The great man's instructions were plain enough, including the techniques, which I had to swear not to give away, for rendering the birds docile enough to manhandle. Even so, whenever I reached the final step, the grand finale of the illusion, my reluctant co-star would take off like a white bat out of hell itself, streaking away over Puget Sound, never to be seen again. Still, if at first you don't succeed, as the old saying goes, then buy more doves. Charlie and Ralph Lose became constant companions, keeping up a regimen of sparring every morning, lunching together, and then walking over to the theatre, then, when we travelled down to Portland, Oregon, the big Texan was invited to ride in our boxcar. What Sterling, his trapeze partner, must have made of it all, I could only imagine. As I watched the two of them chatting away together, I couldn't decide whether Charlie was using Lose as a fighting coach, or a bodyguard, or both. Suddenly they let out a great cheer, and jumped to their feet to press their noses to the window, jabbering excitedly and pointing. I looked out of the window too, but struggled to spot anything that would have justified such a reaction, maybe a circus, or perhaps a flying elephant. Freddy slipped along the aisle and joined me, leaning in conspiratorially. Hogs, he whispered. What? Hogs, that's what they're talking about, Charlie and the Texan fella. I've been earwigging, and that's all they've been going on about since we left Seattle. Shut up. I promise you. His family are farmers, the Texan, and he reckons that he has his grandfather's secret method for making sausages. The two of them are going to go into business together. They're going to buy 2,000 acres of Arkansas and become hog farmers. 
Well, as you can imagine, this was startling news. The idea of Charlie giving up the business of show, which had been his life ever since he was three, if you believe his story about entertaining the troops at Aldershot with a little song and dance when his mother became too ill to perform, was pretty far-fetched. But to give it up to raise hogs, it beggared belief. I realised that I must have really put the wind up him if he was prepared to carry on this lengthy charade just to keep the big blonde lad close at hand. Hogs! I was at the theatre, the Portland Grand, later that same week, going through the daily business of preparing for the day's shows, curling the prestidigitateur's fancy moustache, wondering where Tilly had got to. She wasn't out with Chaplin, at least I knew that, because he was studiously applying his drunk red nose makeup just a few feet away. I sauntered nonchalantly into the corridor, on the off chance that I could get a squint into the girls' dressing room, just to see if she'd arrived without my noticing. I heard footsteps on the stone staircase, and Tilly appeared round the corner, followed closely by Frank Melroyd. He was flushed, and looking pretty pleased with himself. She was white as a sheet. "'Tilly,' I said, "'whatever's the matter? Are you?' She gave a tiny shake of her head, and her eyes flashed, "'Not now.' Then she disappeared into the girl's room, closing the door behind her. Frank watched her go, then squeezed past me into our dressing room, raising an eyebrow with a provocatively smug smirk as he did so. Then he began to whistle. Well, as I'm sure you can imagine, this eloquent little pantomime conjured all sorts of unwelcome scenarios in my imagination. The very next moment I had to pursue inquiries was when the two of us stepped into the wings after the magician segment. On stage, Mummingbirds was still in full flow, and the inebriated swell was shaping up to tackle the terrible turkey in the wrestling match finale. My lovely assistant was scurrying away from me towards the dressing rooms when I grabbed her by the elbow. "'Tilly,' I hissed, "'what on earth happened between you and Melroyd?' "'Nothing,' she said, and tried to move away, but I held her there. "'Don't give me that,' I said. "'I saw how you looked when you arrived.' "'We went for a walk, that's all.' "'That's all?' "'And a cup of tea. "'And?' "'And nothing.' "'Has he hurt you?' I said, "'because if he has, so help me, I'll—' "'No, no, nothing like that. "'He's not like that.' "'I had a quick flash, then, of Melroyd looking down at me "'as I dangled off the back of the box-car. "'Are you sure?' I said. "'Just—' "'Let me go,' she said. "'Tell me what happened to make you look so shocked,' I insisted. "'Oh!' she gave an exasperated glance to the stage, where Mummingbirds was reaching its climax. "'If you must know, he proposed, didn't he?' "'He proposed?' "'Yes, he proposed. "'Now you're not to tell anyone I told you, do you understand?' "'Ha! "'Well, maybe it's not such a grand idea to string several gentlemen friends along all at once, eh? "'Thanks, Arthur, that's very helpful,' she hissed. "'What did you say to him?' "'Well, I'm thinking about it, aren't I, obviously, "'taking some time to think about it. "'He took me completely by surprise. "'I mean, we are friends, that's what I thought. "'But then I am friends with all you boys, aren't I? "'It doesn't mean... "'Oh, I don't know.' "'I was stunned by this revelation, "'and Tilly took advantage of my bewilderment "'to yank her arm free from my grasp "'and scuttle away down the stairs, "'while I sat down heavily on a prop box, "'vigorously scratching my scalp.' The Carnos finished to a good solid round. I could have gone on and taken the curtain call with them, but I didn't, and then my colleagues began bustling past me on their way to the dressing rooms. I glanced up at them as Frank Melroyd went past, with a triumphant little grin on his fat face. Frank Melroyd? Tilly would never seriously consider tying the knot with a dullard like Frank Melroyd. Would she? <laughs> Thank you. 
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.